Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Endurance Asia podcast. This week we have Andre Bloomberg join us. Uh, Andre is uh, based out of Hong Kong. He's known as being the, the godfather of ultra running in in Hong Kong and has a truly in, impressive story of um, of coming from being an, an overweight 105 kg um, a, a technology executive to being one of the the top ultra athletes in in Asia definitely in terms of his resume of his of his the resume of races that he's that he's competed in across the world he's also the the race director and founder of the Hong Kong Four Trails Ultra Challenge which uh, there's been kind of a running theme from a lot of our interviewees on the Endurance Asia podcast having competed in in that challenge and it's kind of down to the iconic nature of that uh, of that race and that challenge it's really the the Barclay marathons of the of the Asia region and um hearing the story about how Andre sort of came up with the concept and how it's kind of just grown over the last few years and um, evolved into the the challenge it is today is is a really great story and whilst this was recorded back in January prior to the 2019 edition of the of the four trails it has real pertinence being being published this um, this week given that the 2020 edition will be opened up for registrations in in July and so I recommend uh, following the uh, the Facebook page, the um, Hong Kong Four Trails Ultra Challenge Facebook page for, for updates on that. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a, a lot of interest for, um, for next year's edition, which will be run over Chinese New Year, end of January, uh, end, end of January 2020. So uh, Rick Stockfish uh, and I will connect uh, at the uh, towards the end of the podcast to break down and, and update on what's been going on over the last uh, last week or so in the ultra endurance world. Um, and with that, Andre Bloomberg. The Endurance Asia podcast. And always tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Andre, welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Uh, it, and it is an interesting time as well. We've got just over two weeks before, I believe it's the eighth or ninth edition of the Hong Kong Four Trails Ultra Challenge. It's the eighth edition. And Facebook moments this morning reminded me that today, 21st of January, exactly seven years ago, I set out to do the original format, which was the, the so-called Hong Kong 4 and 4. Um, ah. So f seven years ago today, I was somewhere on Lantau Trail, and this is where it all started. 
Is that right? So you didn't actually do it over Chinese New Year the first time, the first time round. I did, but Chinese New Year just was uh, quite, quite, quite early uh, in in uh, in late January, seven years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Well, look, I'm um, really pleased to be able to sit down and have a chat with you. Uh, there's, um, I mean, you're you're sort of renowned as being the godfather of trail running in in Hong Kong, and and Hong Kong as a city globally is probably one of the one of the fastest growing places for trail running around the world in terms of the adoption and uh and yeah really interested to hear not we'll obviously go into the four trails ultra challenge but also just where it came from from you where it sort of what's the nucleus of it where did this i suppose passion for endurance sports come from um and so so with that um yeah i'm really interested to hear your sort of backstory sort of what brought andre to be sitting here today as the godfather of trail running in hong kong where did it where did it really really come from yeah maybe a little bit about myself as background i'm uh 49 years old i uh, am from germany originally in your prime for endurance sports yeah yeah maybe a little bit above the prime but uh <laughs> we'll see um there's still hope i hope <laughs> I've been in Asia since over 20 years, originally based in Singapore, uh, but working in the Asia-Pacific region, and then since 2001 in uh, in Hong Kong, based permanently. Um, my professional background is technology. I'm the head of information technology for um, CLP, which is the largest investor-owned utility here in Asia Pacific. So we have large operations in Hong Kong, but also uh, activities in China and in India and in Australia and Southeast Asia. So my day job is uh, head of IT, CIO, if you will. Pretty and demanding, I'm sure. Pretty demanding and uh, interesting career, great company to work for. And with all of the technological innovation and digital disruption, it's never a dull moment. So it's, it's quite interesting. Um, I also like the the regional diversity to it as well because different countries have different markets and different regulation and so on. So that's good. So for the um, the first part of my stay in Asia, um, so left left Germany after university. Originally planning to come out to Singapore just for a year for an internship and then going back to Europe and work. I didn't finish my internship. I left after nine months because I didn't like the company, but then I basically never returned professionally, so I've been staying ever since. Um, so did six years in consulting with Pricewaterhouse, uh, large-scale uh, sort of SAP enterprise resource planning type projects in the region for Fortune 10 global companies, and then um, joined CLP uh, in the early 2000s. And... Uh, so focused during that time mostly, so in my, in my late twenties and, and throughout my thirties, focused mostly on work, on career, um, consulting, lifestyle, as you can imagine, is, is quite demanding. 60, 70, 80 hours a week is normal. Heavy travel schedule, multiple projects in parallel in different countries and so on. And, um, I enjoyed that and I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed uh, the bachelor life in Bangkok, Manila, Jakarta, Hong Kong, and Singapore and, and other places. So it was sort of really work hard and play hard. And um, then towards the end of my 30, uh, 30s, I, uh, I, was, I was, was about to turn 39, 40, so I was about to turn 40. 
I uh, was sort of reevaluating a little bit my uh, my life and taking stock. I had my annual medical as well um, about six months before I turned 40. And uh, um, the doctor was a little bit concerned. So I was overweight. I was uh, 105 kilos, uh, which put me into the grossly obese BMI category. Uh, my cholesterol readings were way too high. And I think my life of work hard, play hard had started to take toll on me. And um, so I, maybe in a bout of early midlife crisis, I then started to think about what I really wanted to do in, in life and in my career and whether it was time to take a reset and do something differently. So then... I thought about that for a couple of months and then I decided that I needed to change uh, upon turning 40. So then a couple of weeks before turning 40, I I started my personal transformation. So I completely cut out alcohol from my life, uh, which I indulged in, in quite, quite a bit um, over the decade prior. Um, and I went basically to cold turkey on that. I changed my my diet as well, so I reduced my heavy late night meals um, and so on. And then uh, I started doing detox uh, treatments and uh, I went going to a, a detox resort in, in Thailand a couple of times and did those a week at a time or even two weeks at a time. Um, and then I started, after sort of my weight started to come off, I started this, this physical exercise. Very, very slow beginnings. I went to the gym. I was still too heavy to really run for my joints. And uh, started on the stationary exercise bike, so 10 minutes first and then 20, and then built from there. Then moved to the treadmill, uh, 10 minutes, half an hour, and built from there. And then fairly quickly, I continued my, my dietary changes, still off alcohol, and um, then the weight just came off fairly quickly. So I lost about um, 30 kilos, 30 plus kilos within six months, which I wouldn't recommend anyone to, to target because I think it's too rapid. Did you target that as I, well? I did, did not have a, I did not have a particular target, no, I, but just the weight just fell off. And the combination of lifestyle changes and, and, and picking up exercise and, and running in particular just uh, made me feel really good. And um, it was interesting because at the time I had been in Hong Kong for eight years professionally and I'd actually never discovered that there are country parks and trails in Hong Kong. You discovered a lot of bars and, uh, and nightclubs. I you? was very familiar with Wan Chai and Lang Kwai Fong and other um, pertinent nighttime and entertainment places at the time. Um, yeah, so it was just a very different part of Hong Kong that I then discovered. So before too long, the gym became boring and and running on road also was, at the time, not really my thing. So I then quickly discovered the trails and and then uh, it went from there. So it started around December 29, uh, 2009. And then I turned 40 at the end of that month. Um, and um, just four months later, in April 2010, I did my first ultra. So the uh, Hong Kong Around the Island Challenge, which is 
a um, 6465 k uh, ultra event on Hong Kong Island in a figure of eight. It's it's a bit of a sort of fat ass event that the uh, uh, local community puts on and uh, so fully self-supported and um, they they do they do have some aid stations uh, but it's it's a low-key uh, event and uh, the the athletic veteran organization put it on here so it's it has a lot of history and so I basically skipped formal marathon events I half marathon I went straight into an ultra that was in April and then in October that year so about Eight to nine months after my journey started, I did my first 100-kilometer trail race, which was in Singapore, the North Face 100, uh, which I came second or third, I can't remember. So, yeah, and then it went on from there. So, I mean, it's really interesting, actually, because I, I first arrived in Asia in, in Hong Kong in 2009, and uh, I was a hiker in the UK before, not, not a trail runner at all, but um, actually at that time you had a couple of big races like the Oxfam Trail Walker in Hong Kong. Uh, but other than that, I mean, the, the Hong Kong 100 hadn't even started. The, the actual trail running in Hong Kong wasn't a, wasn't a big sport at that stage, really, was it? No, that's, ex- uh, that's exactly right. So you had um, the King of the Hill series um, already well established. Uh, Action Asia had a lot of events at the time. Obviously, the Oxfam Trailwalker charity event, which is a team event, 100k on the Maclaws Trail, uh, was quite established, but much less popularized than it is today. And um, so I started at a time when the, I think globally, the ultra trail uh, discipline as, as an endurance sport started to explode. And in particular in Hong Kong and in Asia, um, it started to, to explode and become really, really popular. Um, we've just had the Hong Kong 100 event over the last weekend here in Hong Kong. And if I compare this event with the first and second edition, which I participated in back in 2011 and 2012, it's, it's really very, very different. So I, uh, the first, the first time I did Hong Kong 100, I finished in, uh, 13 hours, 50 minutes, and I put me 10th place. Uh, which is uh, not a time you would get into the top 50 probably nowadays. And it, it started with like 200 people and now it's over 2,000. So it's been, it's been really great to see the rapid increase in interest of people in trail running and in, in ultra running in general. And Hong Kong is such a fast-paced environment. I mean, you lived here, you must have experienced it. A lot of A-type professional uh, people tend to work really long hours, and uh, it's it's great to see that people are discovering the natural beauty and that side of Hong Kong as well, and getting out there. So uh, now sometimes people with their A-type personalities maybe take a little bit too far, and then they just keep piling on races and and then get injured and burn out. So uh, and I've I've made that learning myself, where I used to race a lot because it's so much fun. And, and there's literally uh, a race every single weekend. Yeah, sometimes multiple races a weekend. Yeah, and and I, sort of in 2012, I had just a lot on, and I I did I did a lot of races, 100k and above, and uh, and that was sort of a bit of a reset point. So nowadays I, I pick my events a bit more sparsely and a bit more wisely. Yeah. So I don't race as much as I used to do, but also the events tend to get longer and and more challenging. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm just want to go back a little bit to obviously 2009 you had the not a health scare but a realization that you needed to change but growing up surely that there must have been something we would were you exposed in any way even from like your family from your upbringing were you you know holiday up in the mountains or was there anything that that was there sort of smoldering away that then when you realized the hills are around in hong kong that it it sparked that fire or is there anything anywhere it can you think it might have come from initially I was never really very active in sports during my uh, during my youth and in my early years. We uh, I grew up in the countryside, so next to a forest. So I was like to like to play in the forest and be outside. Um, so certainly enjoyed that. Um, but uh, tried different sports, team sports. Obviously, soccer is very popular in Germany and tennis at the time. And then Boris Becker made made it to fame in Wimbledon and so on. That was very popular. So I tried couple of different sports but nothing really um, uh, stuck with me and then during university years I, I did some running uh, no races really but uh, enjoyed running just as a as a mental break and as a balance as well um, but then coming out to Asia that sort of uh, moved to the background as well again for the first 10 uh, plus 15 years or so yeah so uh, I think the good the good the positive thing about that is that my my body hasn't been beaten up too much in my yeah. in my teens and in my 20s so i i have a lot of friends who did rugby and and, and soccer and other things and so i'm just too beaten up and i can't really run anymore because my knees is gone and and so on so hopefully my my body has still some some running left in it and uh, before the the joints and the knees give up on me yeah from from a like genetic perspective where your where your parents like uh in any way athletic or or like did any running or did you see anything from them or was there anything uh like any brothers or sisters that turned out to be uh to be great runners or cyclists or anything like that or is it um yeah no i don't think uh physically i don't think there is any genetic gift that i've been been provided uh, i think my parents it was always work hard uh, and uh, work hard, so uh, I was very diligent and so on. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone in my family sort of had any any sporty background. Uh, on the mental side, though, I yeah. think that is maybe uh, the genetic gift that my parents have provided me in terms of being resilient and uh, and digging deep and and having a uh, a stubborn mind. Yeah. And uh, I think that can be very helpful in endurance sports. And I think that when you, you, I can completely echo that. I think with people that aren't necessarily athletically fit, but then with endurance sports, it's so much more, uh, it has so much more around the sort of mental fortitude and being able to sort of overcome adversity and push yourself that uh, I think, yeah, that that balance between athletic yeah. fitness and, and mental toughness is, it's quite an interesting. I don't know what percentage it sits at, but I think there's a, yeah, there's a there's a real balance between the two. Yeah, and also I think physically, uh, so my body shape is just not really so prominent for for running, right? I'm just a bit uh, too short. I'm a bit too broad, uh, a, a bit too heavy even even today to do to do running. But over long long distances, that that almost doesn't matter anymore. 
right? And in the mental aspect, as you say, becomes more important as the distance increases. And I think that's one of the reasons that sort of my sweet spot today is sort of 100 miles distance and beyond, where um, obviously I, I train physically and I also do intervals and so on, and I try to have my... Uh, my lactate threshold and so on uh, at, a, at a suitable high level but during these very very long events which take 25 30 50 plus hours um your your v2 max just doesn't matter so much yeah. uh, and the mental aspect and the the grit i think is becoming more and more important yeah yeah and and so going back again to you saying October to, or was it sort of November December 2009 and you ran your first ultra in the April of 2010 and then it was October that was your first 100k so literally within sort of like nine ten months you had uh, you know jumped up quite a few rungs of the ladder I mean, most people start with a 5k or something and start a marathon but you went straight in within a year to 100k like how um yeah so what happened from there what were the sort of next steps of your uh um yeah your sort of endurance racing career yeah and again it, it wasn't really planned and i think i think my my uptake in terms of race distances was probably a little bit too rapid so again it's it's it should probably not serve as a as a leading example i would probably um recommend to to take it a bit slower and and maybe double around with 50k distance for a year or so and then you gradually build from there what were the implications of graduating to 100k so quickly what what I, I think i i think i went okay with it but um it's just at the time it was also when sort of ultra running as we said earlier became more and more popular and I've, I just really found it very appealing in terms of going into that distance. And and to me, sort of where ultra running really started was sort of 100k onwards. Um, so so way beyond the, the formal definition of anything that's longer than 26.2 miles of a marathon. But uh, uh, yeah, you had uh, sort of Anton Kopichka and, and, and some of these uh, Scott Jurek, and, and some of these legends of the sport that we look back uh, on today. So this was a time, and then the internet obviously publicized all of these things much more than than before that. Um, nothing in comparison to what it is today with social media and so on, but it became really widely known. And then at the same time, the the sport really grew rapidly in Asia. So I think those were some of the the key idols i guess i had at the time and uh, you look at dean canazes and his books and so on they they came out at the time and born to run was a big hit at the time so that was sort of coinciding with my um early years and i, f I just felt drawn to this at the time yeah. so after 2011 then 2012 was a year of 100 case for me i did the at the time consisting of five year, five events in five countries, North Face 100 um, series in Asia-Pacific. Um, so when you say you didn't plan it, the following year you did, you obviously did the North Face in Singapore and then you were like, okay, well, maybe we could do the, the full North Face series. Yeah, I did, I, did, I did then from onwards and sort of explore and, and said, okay, what other things are there? And I felt sort of 
confident given my podium finish in my first 100k. So then I did the um, North Face Series in Asia Pacific, uh, five countries, three of which were on back-to-back-to-back weekends. So that was, I think, my, my very early dabbling into sort of series or Grand Slam type of formats where you would one weekend you would run 100k in China and then you would go back to Hong Kong to work and then you would fly next Thursday the same week you would fly to Australia and then come back to work on Monday and then on Thursday you would fly to Philippines and do the third 100k on uh, three consecutive weekends um, and uh, so uh, this was uh, uh, yeah my early my early uh, adventure into that so 2012 was most 2011 was mostly um, 100k's and then in 2012 I stepped up to the uh, 100 mile distance so uh, I did the um, north face sorry the um, New Zealand uh, northburn 100 miler was my first 100 miler and then uh, ultra trail mount fuji in uh, in Japan I did the inaugural UTMF 100 miles in 2012 as well and, and was that just it it felt like the natural progression was to was to step up to the from the 100k to 100 miler you mentioned before that you felt that the longer distance suited you were you realizing that so to sort of then keep on in the sort of top 10 percent top top 10 to move up to longer distances you'll be able to compete even better or was it just that you enjoyed it yeah I, I think it was a little bit of that but also i was always quite drawn to the north american ultra and trail running scene where sort of the 100 miler is the iconic ultra trail distance and um, so that sort of inspired me and um, I felt I I wanted to do that distance and I also tried to lay then the foundation to one day get into some of these iconic North American 100 milers such as Western States or such as Hard Rock so one of the reasons to run the uh, Northburn 100 in New Zealand was that it's a hard rock qualifier. Correct. And at the time, I think it was the only one in Asia Pacific. And still to this day, there are only two or three in, in Asia Pacific. Um, so this actually was my first qualifying run for then a, a five-year journey to put my head into the hard rock lottery. Um, and yes, yeah, so that was always my 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 deliberation then and yeah. back then already i started to have not just a plan for a season but really multi-year planning so if you say okay one day i want to do western states okay what it what does it take to get in one year i want to do hard rock what does it take to get in one year i mean i want to do bad water so what what qualifications does one need to be able to apply for bad water so I had that sort of in my mind and then had this three-year rolling sort of program that I would plan on and, and go back to from time to time and sort of pick my races. Um, because a lot of these events, you don't just sign up. You have to provide qualification in terms of having completed successfully other events. Many of them nowadays have lottery requirements and then some others are more on an invitational format where you basically have to finish certain events but then you also need to demonstrate your motivation on why you should be selected so uh, i always had that 
multi-year format and the sort of the bucket list of quite iconic events and and you just need to then work backwards and say okay what what will it take to build up to that over the next 18 24 36 months um in 2013 then i was lucky to get into western states and that triggered me to register for the other three events that make up the uh, u.s grand slam of ultra running so four iconic 100 milers within the uh, span of just 10 weeks. So uh, that's uh, uh, Western States, uh, Vermont 100, um, Wasatch 100, and also um, one more, which name escaped me right now. Uh, Latville, uh, yeah, thank you. Latville 100 in, in Colorado, yeah. Um, so the Grand Slam was also something that I had heard about and read about and I found that quite appealing, and uh, where, where did you read about it? I can't remember where I read about it. I must have been on the internet, or maybe an ultra running magazine, or yeah. Uh, and there is a, a website maintained run hundreds, and it has sort of the history of the Grand Slam dating back to 1986, and I was sort of drawn. I was drawn to that as well. Again, that's that format of having a, a series of events, so similar to my. I guess my own my own self creation of a series of the North Face hundred K events that I then did back in twenty eleven. Um, yeah, so I was and just going back to that. Was that a common thing, like uh, that people would do the all the North Face one hundreds in one year in in one season? Was it like a much like you have the race in the planet where you have the four deserts, and to do the four deserts in one season is or even in Hong Kong now you have the the four one hundred k races yeah. and do it in one season. At that time, was that actually a thing? Was no, that... I don't think it was a thing. And and the four four deserts is, is, is a formal series as well. But yeah. the, the North Face regional events back then there was no such thing as a classification if you do them all and to my knowledge i was also the only one to do that and finish that so uh yeah did the grand slam in 2013 which was definitely one of the highlights of my career and and also then flying back and forth from hong kong to the u.s you do the event and then coming back to hong kong to work and and sort of you do four long-haul flights within 10 weeks obviously that puts additional strain for people coming from outside of north america to do that then 2014 i did um, badwater in death valley a 135 mile iconic event uh, through very very hot conditions up to 55 degrees what, celsius what year was that that was 2014 2014 i didn't realize you'd done bad water yeah I've done wow bad water. yeah um and then uh, nine weeks afterwards i did uh, the inaugural tahoe 200 miles yeah. uh, a, a single loop around lake tahoe um, which is great as well um, for those two events and and after the grand slam i I think I was a little bit overconfident that I didn't need to train so much, which in hindsight wasn't true. So I struggled in both of these events, and I, I think I could uh, could have performed much better with better preparation. Uh, then I had a bit of a motivational dip, where then in 2015 I only did one hundred miler, which was Angeles Crest in uh, in the U.S. near Los Angeles, which is a great event, another very iconic hundred miler in North America. Um, and then I sort of found my mojo back and did uh, another Grand Slam type of series, uh, this time in Germany. So I did the uh, so-called Millennium Quest, which is uh, 
four events just in seven weeks. The shortest distance is 220K. The longest is 320. The total of these four is 1,005 or 1,007 kilometers racing within seven weeks across three trips from Hong Kong to Germany. Wow. So, yeah, again, so I, I have a bit of a... Uh, uh, an idea and a bit of a preference for these series when yeah. you were a kid were you like did you collect stamps or something or were you I, I can imagine that you were quite obsessive about certain things when you were a kid a collector I, I loved or... collecting collecting lego and I, I loved collecting stamps for a while but the the weird one was uh, uh collecting empty um metal coffee boxes yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just collected those. I put my Lego in there to store it. So, yeah, I, there's a bit of a collector's trade in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great pickup. <laughs> that, that's amazing. I, um, I'm interested about bad water, actually. I've just listened, finished listening to David Goggins' audio book. We had talked about that beforehand and, um, and hearing how he managed to apply for that race. Was that one of the years that, that he that he ran it? I think his was actually, the first time he ran it was 2016 maybe or so. No, I think he ran it earlier than, oh, than I did. He did run it that year. Yeah. And I I still count it as one of my proudest achievements in life that I have beaten David Goggins in Badwater. Did you really? Because I finished he, and he did not. He DNF'd, yeah. <laughs> so I think that was when he, and he outlines it very well in his book, and his podcast, and his audio book, where he then discovered some uh, some medical issues yeah. uh, with his heart and so on. So he took a couple of years, uh, took it a bit slower and recovered, and I think he's since, since then come back, yeah. Yeah. So um, this was also the year where the agencies uh and the the government bodies in in north america and in uh, in california in particular um were really cutting down on on race permits and a lot of controls were put in and reviews were put in in particular in death valley so the year i did it it was actually a a course that was altered uh, which didn't start in uh, in Bedwater Basin, but started uh, somewhere else, and and the course was slightly different, uh, and it was all the, actually the only year that the uh, the course was held in that format. The following year, it went back to the the standard course, but the start times had changed from from morning starts to to night starts. So uh, it's a bit of a shame that the the regulators sort of imposed so many. Uh, restrictions around it in the disguise of safety mm. uh, but uh, kudos goes out to Chris Kostman the uh, the RD of Bedwater to hang in there and carry on and, and, and put, the, put the event on so I'm keen to go back to Bedwater one day um, another great podcast that I recommend is uh, Charlie Engel uh, who has done uh, uh, Bedwater a couple of times um, Charlie holds the Badwater record for participants aged 50 to 55 or 50 to 60, uh, which is 26 hours and a bit. So uh, next year I will be 50, and uh, Charlie, I'm coming after your record. <laughs> <laughs> what what time did you do it? And I know it was a different uh, different course the year you did it, but what time did you finish the 135k? In I was 135 miles, so 230k, 13k. I I wasn't very pre well prepared that year, and 
I also had some challenges with my with my crew because of a late pullout of crew member and Badwater is one where you really need to rely and and uh, and leverage your crew. Um, the temperature gets up to like late forties, isn't it? It's it's actually mid fifties in Celsius, yeah. So it's up to one twenty Fahrenheit, and uh, it's it's quite windy as well. So and uh, there are a lot of myths about bad water, what the conditions are like, but most of these myths are true. So it is really like you're running into into a hair dryer for hours, and it is really that it can melt your the soles of your shoe. So I did it in 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 low forty hours, forty two or something. I can't remember exactly. So it was quite slow. It was a long slog. Were, uh, were there cutoffs as well? Yeah, I think the cutoff is around forty six or forty eight hours. Yeah, um, and I, uh, if you go to my my Twitter homepage, it it has a photo of the uh, Badwater course, and it sees you. It, it shows you me leaning over and. And, and basically throwing up on this on this super long road and winding road, and you see some of the crew cars parked at the side. And it start cooking like scrambled eggs yeah, on the, on it, the it, pavement. It, it is, and you Kev- see people frying eggs on the yeah, side. Yeah, and, and, and Kevin Chan, sort of my, my my one of my crew members at the time, was standing behind me and just sort of standing there and saying, "What what what to do? Where where do we go from here?" So it was pretty tough. What stage yeah. was that at of the race? Um, that was probably around eighty miles in. So still quite a long way to go, yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean heat is just quite quite impactful when it comes to your nutrition and your digestion. So it's it's similar to high altitude, right? So you can be you can be great in in colder weather or at, at sea level, but it can really throw you around when you are running in in, in very hot conditions and or at altitude. Yeah. Would and, you would you say that that was one? I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about. It seems like you've got you've got such an amazing CV of races and uh, Grand Slams, etc. Um, what have been the either DNFs or the or the the biggest moments where you've been deep in the pain cave and managed to drag yourself out or or didn't? Yeah, I'm actually attracted to events and challenges that are really really difficult. And I'm <laughs> no shit. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not really motivated and attracted to events where I know I will finish. I'm actually more attracted mm-hmm. to events where there's a fairly high chance that I may not finish. That to me is sort of appeal of of training hard and and preparing and and towing the line at a at an event. And, and why is that? Does it is it because it motivates you to train harder, or is it you just want to? be able to see how far you can push it or yeah it's, or a, it's a combination i think it's just that i enjoy the, the the challenge of it now obviously if you do 100k and and you you go out hard and you race it that that, that is also very challenging um but to me it's it's really the distance of things that are longer than 100 miles and to me it's it's really about going at least one night or two nights in a row um, so in that, in that territory, which is actually a very, diff- very, very different discipline from from a hundred k. I mean, they're both ultras, but you can't really compare. So sleep deprivation and so on is, is a major part of it, and, and and I enjoy that. I often compare running these hundred plus mile events with doing a complex project at work. 
So if you if you're working in IT, you do a lot of project work, system implementation, other things. So it needs a lot of planning. It needs a lot of preparation. There are a lot of things that are under your control, but there are also a lot of things that are outside of your control, and that makes it challenging and but also interesting. So the project management role and and project oversight role of a of a project at work has a lot of things in common with with preparing for and and running a long ultra where you can control your training, your pace, what you eat. You can't really control whether your stomach or souse. You can't control the weather. Uh, most of the events I do, I haven't trained on before. I haven't seen the course before. Um, so there are a lot of uncertainties as well. You can't control the the rest of the field. And and that really attracts me. So And I, I see this as a personal challenge. I, I basically... During the event itself, I say, okay, I am my own project manager and I constantly check in with me. How's things going? How do I feel? Am I drinking enough? Am I eating enough? Any hotspots? And and, and, and and I just find that very appealing. And then obviously also very satisfying when you finish. Yeah. Uh, but I don't always finish. So I have had my fair, fair share of DNFs. I, I have actually DNFed one event in the Philippines twice. Uh, the uh, so-called uh, Taklang Damulak TD 100 miles um, and uh, both times pulled out. The first time I pulled out, it was very bizarre because I went there just to to finish the event. It, it was actually supposed to be my first 100 miler, so it was the December before the... Uh, Northburn in, in New Zealand and the whole mindset that I had was it's just about finishing the 100 miles after about 6 or 8 hours I found myself to be in the lead so it's a fairly small field, I can't remember how many people started maybe 30 people or so and and many of them were more experienced and I I just wanted to finish but then I found myself to be in the lead and then something clicked in my head and then anything other than winning it was totally unacceptable and um later on that night i went off course uh it's it's an event that is not particularly well marked and i didn't know it and i went off course for over 6 hours trying to navigate and find my way in 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 the uh, in the forest at night and uh, there was no i didn't have a gps device with me i didn't have a map with me and so on so i, I did a lot of backtracking back and forth so i lost a lot of time and once i found my way back on the course and i ran into an aid station from that aid station you can see the highest part of the course which is not very high it's a three four hundred meter hill and the guy who was in the second place had overtaken me while I was off course and I could see him just going and cresting the, the the hill. I could see his headlight and he was just shining and and that was such a demotivating view that I dropped at that aid station. At that time? At that time. I was in second position. I was way inside the cutoffs. I could I could have walked it in but um and no health issues nothing nothing i was just i was just inexperienced back then in terms what year of was it? this was 
end of December 2011. So it was just just uh, just only uh, uh, two years after I started my journey, right? So, but quite an experience mentally. And uh, then I went back the following year, but I I was a bit undertrained and uh, and dropped again. Um, and I have. I have a lot of respect for that event since. I've done many events, arguably, that are much harder. But um, I, I do want to go back to that uh, at some stage, but I need to be in the right mindset for it. Whereabouts is in the Philippines? Is it? Um, it's about uh, five hours drive uh, north east from Manila. Okay. So it's, 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 in, a, uh, it's in a military zone. Um, so the RD is uh, an ex-military senior ranking official in the Philippine Army. He's retired now, uh, Jovi Narcisa. So Jovi, is, he was, who was uh, very instrumental to having built the ultra-running um, events and community in the Philippines. So he's RD for many events, including BDM 100 and BDM 160. He's a road ultras. Uh, which he started 12, 15 years ago. So he's uh, he's been been doing a lot there. Sorry, what's the name of the event again? Uh, Taklang Damulak, TD TD one hundred. TD one hundred. Yeah. So then, and then the other the other major one that I DNF'd was and and the, the, the this year's event just finished literally two hours ago uh, was the Hurt one hundred in Hawaii. Mm. And um, the Hurt one hundred is one of the um, most difficult 100-mile events in, in North America. Most of the 100-milers the in the U.S. have a 30-hour cutoff. Hurt 100 has a 36-hour cutoff. And that's definitely justified and for a reason because it's, 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 it's a very tough event. It's um, in uh, Oahu um, and it's five loops of 20 miles. And each loop has out and back sections. So the actual distance of, of trail is only 13 miles, but you, you're going out and back and looping around so many times. You're going back through start-finish five times, and the mental uh, toughness you need to go to start-finish and then go out again and, and do that five times is, again, mentally something that at the time I didn't, I didn't have. Uh, this was 2014 when I attempted it, and I had this big high uh, after finishing the Grand Slam in 2013. And I, again, I took, I think, myself a little bit for granted and, and, and felt I could do these things and wing them and do it with a little training. And you cannot wing Hurt 100. There's just no way. It's very hot, very humid, lots of roots on the course, quite a bit of elevation change. And it's very common that it has a DNF rate of 50 to 60%. So uh, yeah, so TD one hundred and Hurt one hundred, I I will need to go back and and finish them. Right, those wrongs. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's another one actually that I was listening to on the David Goggins audio book, and it sounds like a, a harrowing technical trail on um, I forget which which island is it on and Hawaii Island on the Wow Wow yeah, um, and the the concept of doing the same route over and over again it can be really demoralizing can't it because you just know what's coming up next you know um yeah and it's similar to the races and we talked about it for the um the going around this track for 
uh, 24-hour race to see what kind of distance you, you can do. But have you have you done any other? I know Barclay Marathons obviously had a, has a similar format of doing the same route over and over again. Have you done any other uh, big races that have that kind of format? No, most of my events uh, have been um, either single loop or point to point. point. And certainly from a mental aspect, I think uh, looped events are much harder. And you really need to prepare mentally for that uh, intensively before you do them. Because otherwise, the temptation just to drop because you've got all the comforts at, at start-finish and your crew is there and it's an easy drive out to your hotel and to your comforts, that's that's very appealing. So you need really to be very strong. And I dropped after two loops. Um, I would have been pulled from the course because I was moving too slow. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I sort of dropped in, in, in anticipation of that. And what it has taught me, though, is that Nowadays, when I prepare for a race, even if it's not a multi-loop, is mentally I say to myself, okay, I do not drop voluntarily. If, unless they pull me off the course because I'm seriously injured or I'm past the timing cutoff, I do not drop voluntarily. And that to me is this little tool mentally and this little help to say, okay, I do not drop unless I get pulled off the course, and I found that quite helpful since. So I haven't, I haven't DNF'd since since that time. Interesting. And when you finished those, so when sorry, when you when you DNF'd on those three races, what was your process after? What did you what did you go about to, I suppose, unpack why why you didn't finish? And was there a specific process you went through either yeah writing down or like do you do you write sort of like race reports for yourself after every every race i don't i don't write extensive race reports i i do keep copies of my um my preparation and then i'll i'll, I'll write down sort of timing planned versus actual and so on and i'll, I'll sort of keep scanned pdfs of that um generally all three dnfs it was massive amounts of regret the day after and 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 really really feeling low and for for days and weeks afterwards and and very frustrated that i did not continue and uh for her arguably i i was under tra under trained and under prepared um but you obviously traveled a long way for it as well. Yeah, it's a it's a nice a nice location. So the, the upside of of not finishing is that you get to go back to Hawaii and and try again and enjoy the scenery. <laughs> um, but that 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 first year TD one hundred, um, yeah, it was it was actually very bizarre. It was sort of really the the mental school uh, of of ultra running. I. I was in the lead and I feel it felt good and I was I was trying to motivate myself to keep going and at that time Jeff Jeff Rose was very um very popular and he had won and set the course record at Western States at that year or the year before and and he had this 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 track record that he had uh, won every single 100 miler that he had entered and I, I built this mental bridge for me myself and I said, okay, this is my first 100 miler, so I can 
I can say, just like Jeff, I've won every 100 miler that I've started. And I was just too, too cocky and too confident. And then the guy mm. overtook me and I would have caught him, I'm sure. I would have caught up with him because uh, I spoke to him afterwards and he really struggled and he, he almost needed the whole time prior to cut off to, to complete it. And he basically walked it in. It's 250 mile loops and he uh, he really took his time. I definitely would have caught him. It's just, just but I, I think that's part of learning and that's, I think, part yeah. of that, that mental sharpening and, and uh, and getting getting through that and taking it away and then improving further. Yeah, I I've got this thing uh, where I was running Rinjani last year and I was only doing this the sixty kilometers, but uh, I got into this last checkpoint for the finish with ten k to go and uh, and I was in fifth position and the guy this guy in sixth place was like ten minutes behind. I was like and I was ten minutes behind fourth. I was like okay, the perfect position would and. I had this I had this overwhelming sense of pride which now uh, I've realized that that comes immediately before a fall and I at that point the route broke off for the 100 kilometer rate the route which is really what I should have been doing I felt guilty for not doing that but anyway I think that guilt took me up the 100 kilometer route and it wasn't until 5k up the hill that I caught up with someone and asked them if they were doing the 100 or the 60 and they said this is the 100k course and i realized that i had to turn around and go back and and one of my biggest learnings for that was pride becomes before a fall and if you feel that sense of yes the sense of achievement before you've actually achieved it then there's a very good chance that that will cause you to fail and so that's something i've always or since then have been like don't be proud of yourself or don't think that you've achieved something when you haven't set foot on that finish line. Yeah, and I think ultra running again is is a really, really good example for that because so many things can change and, and so many things that are outside of your control can change. Um, I've just witnessed it again last weekend at the Hong Kong 100 when uh, the, the leader went off course uh, with 20k to go um, and it only cost him four or five minutes, but then second place had overtaken him and he never caught back up and he came second. And I've, I've seen people that, that are um, well side in the top 10 and then they sort of take it for granted and then they get overtaken again at the end. So it ain't over until the fat lady sings, they say, and, and that's certainly very true in ultra running. Mm-hmm. And you, you just need to keep your head down and... Um, it's it's amazing how many people, and I used to be the same, give up too early. It's amazing how many people that do a 100K or 100 mile event have stomach issues, which is very common, mm. and then they drop very quickly. That's a half an hour, an hour after having digestive issues or maybe throwing up, and then I say, oh, my stomach is not in it today, I'll drop. But... You can dig yourself out of those holes. And I've had events where I had stomach issues and I walked for five or six hours at a slow pace just on water and my stomach did turn around and then I could finish strong afterwards, well within the cutoffs. And again, that comes with experience, but a lot of... A lot of other people will have the same issues in the event and the longer they are, the more the likelihood of having these issues and you just got to keep going and stay on 
until they pull you off the course. I love that, Andre. Yeah, the, I will not stop unless they pull me off the course. Remind that for a couple of weeks when you embark yeah. on your personal challenge. Yeah, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about the Hong Kong Four Trails Ultra Challenge is like, why? Where did it come from? I think you've answered that question in terms of all the challenges that you've done around the world and then all, and all of the sort of multi-events over a period of time, whether it be the, um, the 100 miles in the US or the Five North Face or... And then you realized coming back to Hong Kong that there was nothing of the like in Hong Kong. Yeah, what I found interesting at the time was, and the, the ultra running scene, as we said, was still in its infancy back then. But you already had the, the four desert races at the time and becoming very popular. And um, the format of those events was multi-day format. And I... I witnessed and I thought about a lot of people from Hong Kong that are participating in these multi-day events, whether that's uh, Four Deserts or whether it's Marathon de Saab. And I felt it's, it's strange. There's so many people from Hong Kong that travel around the world to participate in them, but there isn't any multi-day event in Hong Kong. And then I thought, hmm, what could a format look like for multi-day event? And I said, actually, there are four trails in Hong Kong that are longer than a marathon distance. So how about stringing those four back to back to back to back and doing them on four consecutive days? And that's what I did seven years ago. And it was really just a personal challenge. I, uh, I never anticipated that it would get so much momentum as it has over the years. And I put it out on Facebook and said, anyone dare to join? Um, everyone thought I would be mad. I spoke to uh, a good friend, Clive Safari, who used to be based in Hong Kong and who has a 50-plus year of ultra-running personal history, very experienced, and uh, he knew the scene very well at the time. I said, Clive, has anyone ever done it before? No, of course not, but you should give it a go. And uh, so I did, and... Uh, uh, yeah, it was Lantau Trail first, uh, first day, 70K. Then it was Wilson Trail day two, 78K. Hong Kong Trail on day three, 50K. And then the Mecklehurst to round it off on the fourth day, 100K. And um, yeah, again, it has this uh, series character. It has this multi-day character. And um, the interesting thing was whilst giving myself, again, uh, maybe only 50-50 chance of completing this, which attracted me to it, I felt actually disappointed when I had completed it. And it's it's sort of bizarre how the mind sometimes works. You embark on a, on a big challenge, and then you complete it, and then you say, I'm disappointed because it wasn't hard enough. It, it could have been harder. You should have made it harder. And at, at that year, it was you did them in consecutive days, or correct? It was it was uh, four four in days. sort of a stage format, yeah. So one one trail a day over four consecutive days. So then the the subsequent and this was in 2012. The so subsequent year in 2013, I I then then said, okay, how can I make it difficult more difficult? And I then combined Lantau Trail and 
So I combined, uh, I think, Lantau and Hong Kong Trail into one day. So it was then four and three. And then the year after that, uh, I changed it to the nonstop format, which um, prevails until today. Yeah. And was it always in the um, opposite direction of which the main races on the trails run? Did the, you do it from the very beginning going in the, in the alternate direction? No, the first two years actually was in the, in the normal forward direction. Yeah. And then as part of that, that, that change to non-stop, I also looked at other things in terms of how can they be made more challenging and so cut-off timing obviously played into that. Um, and then, uh, but also the direction played yeah. into it. Yeah. So the format today is, uh, it's a non-stop format. It's McLaws Trail first, 100K, then Wilson Trail, 78K, then Hong Kong Trail, 50K. It's a bit... It's a bit shorter than 50k, but we make up by actually adding a little bit of distance both to the Hong Kong Trail beginning and the Wilson Trail beginning. And then uh, finishing off in Lantau with a 70k. The uh, non-stop time also includes not just your time on trail, but actually also getting in between trails. So that counts into the timing as well. You are fully self-supported whilst on trail and, and you have no course marking, no aid stations, no supply points, no backdrops on trails itself. So you have to carry all your stuff. Um, between trails, you are allowed any, any support and you can have a crew car and you can have crew waiting for you. Um, and uh, there are other logistical sort of bits that, that make it quite interesting as well, such as you have to take the ferry between Hong Kong Island and Lantau Island to then start the final one, the Lantau Trail. So then you are dependent on ferry uh, schedules and, and timing and so on. So so the uh, the event, I think, is built around not just your physical fitness, but also obviously your mental ability and, and, and toughness, your ability to handle severe bouts of sleep deprivation, and also your logistical and planning um, abilities because if you if you don't have those then there's no way that you will be able to do it within the cutoffs so the current cutoffs are 60 hours for the so-called finisher category and there have only been six individuals in the history of the event that have been able to finish sub 60 hours of and a total uh, how many was the total of people that have attempted um about 60 or 70 people yeah, yeah so about 10 percent and then uh, if you finish between 60 hours and under 75 hours then you're deemed a survivor and for this year's edition you we've you've got 32 people that have uh, expressed an interest signed up I'm one of those stupid few, um, but you've you were going through before the. Uh, there's eleven of those have actually attempted before. Yeah, I've got as of as of now thirty one that are confirmed. We had one uh, dropout about a week ago, and I went through the the wait list uh, and and reached out to people if someone is interested. And uh, I'm waiting for one more person to reply and then we'll, we'll lock it up uh, so we're probably going to be 30 31 uh, i'm very very pleased to say that 13 of the 31 are female so that's 42 percent of the start i was 
ambitiously aiming for 50-50 field, but then uh, I think 42% is pretty good already. Uh, it's at least twice the, the normal female participation rate in, in, in ultras. And, and actually on that, I did want to want to bring it up because there was a, a phenomenal feat of endurance just in the last week or so. The uh, lady Paris, I forget her first name. Jessica Paris. Jessica Paris did the Pennines Way, the 240 mile or I forget it's, the... Yeah, 268. The spine race in the UK, yes. Yeah. And she completed that. I like got the record, uh, finished first, twelve-hour record on that. Whilst, uh, whilst pumping and dumping, like breastfeeding along the way, um, just unbelievable feat of endurance. That and uh, and along with is it um, uh, Courtney DeWalter? Courtney DeWalter, who did the Moab two forty, and Camilla Heron. Yeah. A similar, dis- like yeah. she won by like twelve hours or so on that yeah. race as well. Yeah. It's quite interesting how women are just phenomenal at these kind of ultra ultra extreme distances. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's um, something that we will see a lot more of going forward. And I'm really interested to help as many females as possible come onto the Hong Kong Fortress Ultra Challenge to to test their limits and to to become role models as well and to show to their peers that it can be done. I, I've seen over and over in my own races that women are much better at pacing and we spoke about that earlier and I think they are much less uh, emotional about doing something or not but once they commit they're really in it um, I've seen only one female uh, drop off the start list over the last six months but I've seen 10 or 12 guys drop off so guys are easy on the trigger to sign up and then they get second thoughts, they get cold feet female are tend to be more thoughtful in, in everything they do. They tend to be a lot more thoughtful on whether they really want to embark on the challenge. But once they say yes, they are committed to it and they they stick to it and get it done. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to see what Meredith uh, from Australia will do this year. Um, she, she finished, in, oh, she survived in 65 hours or so. 60, 66 and change, yeah. yeah. So she's very strong and... Uh, not not living in Hong Kong and not knowing the course is a is a major additional challenge. She's so was Australia based, isn't she? Yeah, she's she's based in Melbourne. So um, for her, it will be the second year, and obviously, once you come back, then that's a big bonus uh, that you know the the format of the event and you know the trails better. So uh, it will be great to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, eleven returnees. Uh, so Meredith from Australia and Abby from Singapore are both former finishers. Uh, and we've got uh, 20 first-timers. We have uh, a very good diverse background of nationalities and countries where people are based. So we have uh, only five Hong Kong uh, locals. Uh, and we've got seven people, including those five, that are based in Hong Kong and everyone else is based elsewhere. And we have a total of 14 different nationalities among the 31 people. Wow. So it's quite international. Um, And with that, what are some of your predictions for the 
Hong Kong Four Trails Ultra Challenge in 2019. Who, yeah, I suppose firstly, out of those 31, like how many do you think you're going to see finish and who who, who are your sort of, who would you put your money on to see finish and, and how many do you think survive? Well, I think similar to many other ultra events, it's interesting to observe how over the years you have sort of this communal and community wisdom and and body of knowledge build up in terms of what does it take to complete that challenge or what does it take to really excel and PB and CR at that event. So, and and the community I think is quite, quite sharing and collaborative in, in terms of providing those those tips mm. regardless of the event and and that's quite interesting so this event in particular now has been run for a couple of years so i think we see this body of knowledge and the tips and tricks sort of growing and we've seen in in the documentary breaking 60 um, which outlines the 2017 event uh, some of that as well so i think people are becoming smarter and uh, know better, they prepare better of how to deal with these things. Um, at the same time, I'll try to tinker a little bit with the rules and uh, make it uh, uh, harder than in previous years, depending on how many finishers and survivors we had in a given year. So the uh, the overall 60-hour cutoff remains, but then uh, this year we uh, don't allow trekking poles, uh, and we start an hour later, which means there will be an hour additional night time to contend with. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a strong field. It's uh, it's also now this year where more and more internationals that are really strong have decided to join. And I think it's on many more people's radar internationally. Um, so we have uh, Elizabeth, who won the... Uh, Ultra Trail Gobi 400k in China last year. She's from Iceland, coming all the way over. Uh, we have uh, Tomo-san from Japan, who is a notorious 100-mile uh, racer. He just today finished, uh, heard 100 in fourth place, just over 24 hours. Doing uh, that two weeks before is a big, that's a big... Yeah, uh, yeah. Big I, I spoke to him about that a week ago, and he said, I heard it's easy. I'm looking forward to uh, to your event. So we'll see how that goes. So um, the field is definitely getting stronger. I think we will see two, three, four finishers this year. Yeah. And probably um, uh, eight to ten survivors. Yeah. Um, obviously, it, it also depends on what the weather is like. So last year, we've seen a very hot first day, and some people went out too quick uh, and then and then dropped. Um, I think people are more considerate now again. Um, so we'll see. I'm looking forward to it. It's... Uh, it, it, it's it's really tough. It's it's challenged. I know you you had uh, very good preparation. You've you've trained on the course a few times. I think you've rehearsed the critical junctions and public transport intersections and so on, um, and nutrition and, and other things that are important. So uh, it will be fascinating to watch. We will have uh, GPS trackers on everybody again. So it's quite interesting because it happens during Chinese New Year and. These are public holidays in in Hong Kong and in many other countries in the region here, and so people don't go to work. People often stay at home to be with their family during the Chinese New Year festivities and spending a lot of time on the smartphones and the computers to follow it. and And yeah. we see a massive amount of global following online on the 
uh, real-time GPS tracking maps and system and so on. So it's going to be quite interesting to follow how it unf- unfolds. Yeah, the, the social media coverage in previous years has been truly engaging and enthralling. I, I remember watching, it was actually the 2017 where the, the Breaking 60 documentary was, was done, but um, seeing Tom Robertshaw like cross the line there, like with his, well, get to the, the post box with his, with his dogs running along there. And it was, I was just, just absolutely flawless run that was wasn't it? i think he did in 54 hours or 55 hours having done it in just over 60 the prior year and yeah i was just like just absolutely amazing to follow and the engagement you were getting on the social platforms was just was great it's, yeah um, he did it actually in 53 and and he uh, he missed the finisher cutoff by 38 minutes in 2016 yeah and uh so he's based in hong kong and i think he he worked incredibly hard then to to come back the following year and and as you say put a a flawless execution in uh, and finish in in 53 hours sharp i'm very grateful to have lloyd belcher of lloyd belcher visuals again participate uh, lloyd has uh, kindly supported the event for several years and uh, an ultra runner himself being on the course and out there to do uh, photos and, and, and live uh, updates on, on social media with the photos he takes. Um, this year I'm quite excited that he wants to take it to another artistic level and also provide video coverage. Um, we've actually debated quite a lot in terms of how do we maintain the, um, the basic ethos of the challenge and not make too much real-time coverage and so on. So. The video coverage will not be real time, it, but it will basically be a, a daily summary at the end of each day where he puts a, a short five to eight minute clip together of the events that unfolded. Uh, but that's just going to be a, a, a nice new nuance to this to this challenge. So I really am grateful for him to participate and look forward to what that looks like. Yeah, he's, he's the best in the business, isn't he? Just, uh, yeah, f- such a phenomenal artist. Um, yeah, because I saw that there's two people that are coming back this year that that just survived last year so you've got abby from singapore and, and meredith and i think the two of those i mean they both sort of finished quite strongly last year but i think they're both looking having done it before they know what it takes to to go the extra mile and to get it in under 60 i think they're I, i'd have my money on those two yeah definitely i think they both have high chances of being among the finishers and uh, i think they're both very motivated and i think reason for them to come back is to to become finishers yeah and it's it's interesting that we haven't seen any finisher return this year so i think once you've done it it's just well, so think- incredibly hard and it takes you so long to recover from it and say well yeah once is enough i don't really care about the time just finishing it on 60 that's i think we enough. need to change the format andre i think <laughs> we were discussing this before weren't we like uh rather than having a car pick you up on the transition from trail to trail to do that by human power too. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that'll bring a couple of the finishers back to cycle from the end of the McElhose to the beginning of the Wilson and cross the, uh, cross the harbour on a kayak um, <laughs> on the Wilson. Yeah, we'll keep those, those things in, in my back pocket to, to make it harder. We actually have one local Chinese participant who told me last week that he will be running from the end of Wilson Trail 
to the beginning of the Hong Kong Trail himself. And he will be running from the peak at the end of Hong Kong Trail down to the ferry himself. And he hasn't organized anyone to wait for him at the end of McClough's Trail. Um, So you're just going to jump in a taxi? He's just going to rely on maybe other crew to give him a lift or get a taxi. What's his thinking about that? Well, he just uh, says, okay, I I, want to keep it low profile and I I like the nature of it and and, and the the, the nature of the event. And and, um, he said, we we don't want it to be too easy so which is sort of something that i often put out in my my regular updates and you've received them in terms of uh to people that have signed up and and trying to scare them a little bit into the undertaking that they've signed up for and it's not too late to drop i won't tell anyone um so think about what you want to do and we don't want to make it too easy so he's (laughs) he's taking that to the next level that's impressive what's his name Uh, i don't want to disclose his identity He, he he likes to be a bit Go under the radar, the but uh, he did Hong Kong Hundred last weekend, and he did quite well. So I'm sure we'll we'll be seeing much of him during the event. Yeah, that still might yeah make it a bit more difficult for him to finish. But I suppose then if he if he does finish with those extra mileage as well, that's gonna yeah, be he's he's prepared very well. He's uh, I've actually uh, he applied in I think two years or three years ago, and I didn't let him in, and I encouraged him to get a bit more experience and and do. 100 miler which he has done then and he's finished uh ultra trail mount fuji i think once or two years ago in in under 30 hours which is quite quite good so i think he'll be ready and he's quite confident that he will catch the three o'clock ferry despite these additional kilometers that uh, he will run interesting and how many people did actually apply for it so you've got 31 of uh, that are going to be at the start line. How many original? How many applications did you have in total? Yeah, we've seen more and more people applying over the years. We had well over 100 applicants, yeah. and um, the application—it's it, an invitational format. And what that means is you can't just sign up; um, you can express your interest, and then it's basically up to me who who, who will get a slot. And um, it's very important for me to make sure that it's a balanced field in terms of having people that are very strong in terms of prior performance and and the and, middle middle of the packers like me <laughs> well and, and other people that have a strong uh, motivational reason for doing it yeah and i don't want to make it an elite event uh, obviously it is very challenging just to just to complete the distance um but uh, it's it's really about that 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 balance and diversity. Hence, yeah. a strong desire to have many female participate, a strong desire to have many, many nationalities participate, and also there's a good balance in terms of people who have a strong track record in having done other events in good times, but also people that may uh, be a, maybe not quite as fast, but have a very very strong emotional reason and an emotional bond to do it. Yeah. And they're probably going to be much more likely to drop. But I do want to give them the chance to do it because they, in their application uh, and in their, in their essay, they, they're writing about things that, that happen in their life and they want to pass on a motivational aspect to other people, be it their kids or be it uh, uh, other um, community members and I find that very inspiring and that's that's sort of my, my reason actually to put on the event so it's not commercial it actually costs me a lot of money to put it on uh, there's no starting fee uh, that people participate and um, 
I do it because it's my way of giving back to the community because I've 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 gained so much from uh running ultra events and being part of that community since uh 2010 that uh, it's just sort of my small bit of of saying thank you and giving back. Yeah. That's phenomenal. And I'm really excited to um to see how it all all transpires. Um so to wrap up Andre, I'd just like to ask a few sort of like quick fire questions and um firstly your most inspirational book well one person that inspired me a lot and and his book is part of that as well is is rich roll and uh, rich roll had somewhat a similar background to me in terms of really focusing as a high-powered uh, legal professional um, in, in, in a corporate world in his 30s and then being overweighed and and so on and uh, and then changing his life when he turned 40. Is uh, that Ultraman? Is it, what's, and Ultraman was the race he was doing? What's the, what's the name of the it, book? The name of the book is Finding Ultra. Finding Ultra. Yeah, so so Rich went through similar self-transformation. Uh, he had uh, much more of an athletic background in his, his use in terms of a, a, a swimmer. Uh, and he's done quite a lot of triathlons and so on. But uh, it's also endurance sports. So I, I found that quite uh, quite fascinating. And I followed him way before the book came out. And he was sort of really one one of the key inspirational uh, people that sort of helped me trigger my, my own change when I turned 40. Yeah. So I still follow him. He's got a great podcast as well. Um, and he's got great... Uh, guests on the podcast and a lot of them are endurance athletes obviously yeah um so that's uh a very i think good david book. goggins he was like one of the first to get david goggins on back in the day as well actually. yes yeah yeah um and and with that uh are there any other podcasts that you uh a keen listener to yeah i like i like the joe rogan podcast so uh, he's got good uh guests on there uh and a, and a broad diversity so i don't i don't listen to all episodes but uh uh, he's got uh, a good good mix of people, so I, I like to listen to that, especially during my long runs. Um, on the ultra running side, I actually like a podcast called Science of Ultra, yeah. which talks about that, the science and the uh, science-based uh, aspects of ultra marathon running in terms of your training, your nutrition, and, and so on. So that's I find that very uh insightful and, and and learn a lot from that as well yeah it's a good one um and in fact just on that um, around nutrition what what are your what are your thoughts on nutrition nutrition is highly personal i think and and it really is quite individual what works for one person may not work for someone else uh, i've evolved my tr- nutrition over the years i i still prefer um, fluid-based calories, so that could be dissolved powder or, or other fluids. That just seems to work better for me. And, um, and rather than just race nutrition, sort of like a, your general thoughts around nutrition from day to day? Yeah, that has sort of evolved as well. I dabbled in vegetarian, uh, being vegetarian for a while. I've actually, maybe inspired by Ritual as well, uh, gone 15 months vegan. Wow, uh, a while you've, ago you've been 15 months vegan now. Uh, no, not currently. This is a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and what I found was it's it's really a big difference in terms of your ability to recover. So you, I think your body inflammation is just so much lower mm-hmm. uh, being vegan. And uh, 
and that helped me in the recovery. But it's, at the same time, it's difficult to to keep that up and maintain that on on in a social circle as well. Uh, I guess if you're living in in Southern California, it's a lot easier than uh, in Hong Kong. Um, so at the moment, it's it's a flexitarian diet. So I I'm conscious of what I eat. It's 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 mostly plant based, but I also eat uh, eat meat. I love, love my sashimi. Uh, but probably 60-70% would be uh, uh, plant-based. Yep. And the best kit you've bought for a hun- under 100 US? The best kit I bought, um, maybe not, not uh, two, two areas. One is um, an anti-chafing product. So one of the issues with going much beyond the 100k distance is, is body chafing, especially when it's hot or when it's when it's wet, when it rains. And uh, I, uh, for many years, have used a product from New Zealand called Gurney Goo, yeah, which is uh, really good and it's sort of never let me down. Um, I I use that as well. Actually, do you, would you like? put it everywhere or is it mainly just feet or like everywhere that you've got the chance of it, chafing? It, it, and it's it's most mostly where i, I traditionally shave so it's yeah. it's uh my so uh, your balls uh, <laughs> sorry Andre. it's my balls it's my butt it's my uh, my my lower back when you have you could have shaving your from your backpack yeah uh, it's under my arms in certain spots i don't typically uh, use it for my feet i i for my feet i actually tend to use two layers of socks. Yeah. So in Gingy inside and then Drymax outside. And then that helps transfer the friction that you traditionally have between your feet and your skin and your sock to move that tr- friction to happen between your two socks. Yeah. And that has uh, put me in good stead in, in many events. Um, the other um, piece of kit that I really like uh, is the the North Face uh, shorts, which which are two layered, so they have an inseam layer, and again it helps me against chafing uh, between your ties, and uh, that's something that I've been using for many years now as well, and I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I've got a pair of those actually, but I actually prefer the two XU or the the tight ones. I think um, T8 do one like now and then just normal shorts over. But you you like the ones that have got the inner short as well as the outer short. All yeah, so these are sort of two in one. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it basically again helps you uh, against the chafing. It's got lots of pockets as well, which is useful. And yeah, yeah. So obviously lots of you can really geek out on on gears above hundred dollars, and there's yeah. no uh, no open end. So I've got my Fair share of watches, and uh, I've got a uh, uh, a power based uh, uh, stride foot foot port. I've got uh, a, a sleep tracker and a, uh, a heart tracker. I've got watches. I've got GPS devices and so on. But uh, actually, it's uh, the good thing about ultra running is that you can you can geek out if you want to, but you can also be very simple and. Just have, uh, as I say, a pair of shoes and some shorts, and then off you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. excellent. And uh, and to finish, I'm going to ask you a question that I actually always ask in like work interviews that I run. But is um, what's your what's your proudest personal and professional moment of of your life? So what are the, what are the moments that you're that you're most proud of? Well, in my personal and sort of ultra running. Um, perspective proudest obviously is when you finish really tough events that you train for hard and i think the 
the 2013 Grand Slam in the U.S. is is, is ranks up very highly there because it's such a highly recognized event in ultra running and it's such a small field of individuals who've accomplished this. I don't know what the exact latest stats are, but there are almost 9,000 people that have gone up Mount Everest and come back down alive. There are only 300 odd people that have done the Grand Slam of ultra running in the US. Does that have to be in the same, all in the same year to be considered the Grand Slam? Yes, correct. It has to be done all in the same year, yeah. Yeah. And it's increasingly difficult to to do because it's more difficult to get into these events. And most of them have lotteries now and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the initial uh, Hong Kong 4 and 4, which I did seven years ago, was was a key i think uh, proud moment as well although even I, though at the time you I was said, disappointed yeah but, uh, <laughs> but on hindsight now it's yeah. a pretty seminal moment in your life yeah right? certainly and i think it's laid, laid the foundation to the uh, uh hong kong fortress ultra challenge that we know today yeah professionally uh there are many i think it's always uh, a proud achievement to finish a difficult project together with the team and going through challenges and adversity and, and, and technical and other problems and so on doing that and, and, and having a, a critical new system that goes live, um, but also for the team to win uh, awards on behalf of the company and behalf of projects and so on. That's always great recognition as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've been a obviously a very successful uh, successful ultra runner and you've got a successful career there, but it's interesting the people I speak to about the, you know, I don't know whether it is the, the alpha side of it, but it seems that people that tend to be very good in the business world, it translates very well into the, um, into the ultra world as well. I think the, the, the ultra running community is, is very, it's great variety. And what I like about it that is that it becomes an equalizer, right? So it doesn't matter what you do in your day job you're at the start line and then you're basically all the same and i always tend to say ultra running unites the barista and the company ceo and the university professor and everything in between and uh, it doesn't really matter what you do there you're you're all the same and uh, so that's that's really good i think it it does to do well and to persist and to to finish i think it does require personal traits that are equal in success in other areas of your life so you got to be organized you got to have tenacity you got to get up and do your run at 4 30 in the morning when you don't really want to do it um and and those those traits of uh, goal setting and planning and persisting and uh and and not giving up i think they put you in good stead both in your professional and in your in your running or in endurance or in your sports or in, in any type of hobby, right? So and I think that's that's what actually, in my view, I find, and I'm I'm thankful for for ultra running to give back to me in my professional life, right? And it, it sort of both sides complement each other, and I find it useful to to take things from my professional life into running and vice versa from running into my professional life. Yeah. So professional. My professional, I think, learning through ultra running has certainly taught me to be more relaxed 
and not sweating the small stuff and seeing the bigger picture rather than really focusing on everything individually. I still like technology. I'm still can go into a lot of detail if I want to, but I've, I've, I've relaxed a lot more. And I think having that, that bigger picture is, and putting things into context, does it matter in 10 minutes? Does it matter in 10 days? Does it matter in 10 years? And that's certainly something that ultra running has taught me. Yeah. Brilliant. And um, okay, just finally then, Andre, um, you obviously, we've got the Hong Kong Four Trails Ultra Challenge coming up, which your race director and we'll be, uh, we'll be um, seeing everyone to the finish at uh, the post box. But what else have you got in your calendar for the, for the next year that you're excited about? I'm currently uh, reshifting my focus and running a little bit towards road running. Uh, I've done a lot of iconic ultra trail events around the world and uh, I'm looking personally sort of for my next challenge in terms of how how can I uh, make it interesting and keep it interesting and I'm, I'm quite uh, keen on on long road ultras I've done last year and won and set a course record fortunately at the 230 kilometer Tortue de Ruhr in Germany back in May last year I've also uh, finished Spataslon in September one of the really grand iconic road ultras around the world and uh, currently I'm training and preparing for the Sakura Michi nature run which is a 250 kilometer road ultra in Japan um, and it has uh, a lot of significance in the Japanese ultra running and road running circles it will be the 25th uh, running of the event this year so it's got a lot of history and it has a lot of similarities to Spataslon and, and Badwater and to the Rua and sort of that segment of ultra long distance road ultras, so 200k plus plus. Um, yeah, so I'm looking very much forward to that. I'm looking forward to the, the renowned hospitality of Japanese events. And it's again, it's an event that is very much to my liking. I, I prefer low key events. This one has 140 people in total only and only uh, 24 of these are non-Japanese um, and that's sort of my kind of event that I enjoy sort of smaller scale not more than two three hundred people and uh, less less commerce and less commercial yeah not not so much UTMB and uh, yeah <laughs> yeah I, I think that the UTMB course is great and I think once you leave sort of the uh, uh, the, the villages and it's it's great but it's just maybe a little bit too many people there it's so i haven't i haven't planned anything for the second half of the year so i do uh, i do want to go back to spartaslon i think at some stage i haven't decided on whether i do it this year or in future um, we spoke about me wanting to go return to bedwater but that will probably wait another year uh, i'm also very keen to do the coast to cozy which is one very iconic event in australia they didn't do it this year though, yeah they? last year unfortunately in december they had to uh, to cancel it due to changing regulatory and other compliance yeah. uh, burden that was put on the race director, unfortunately, fairly last minute. So uh, they had to, to uh, cancel it. I very much hope that it will be held this year in December and, and definitely will uh, put my name into the uh, invitation application list as well, if that yeah. takes place. And get one of the, get one of the hats. Get That's right, the, yeah. yes. 
Uh, Andre, it's been brilliant. It's been so good to chat with you. Um, any any closing remarks? Any thoughts for um, for people that are looking to either just step on this journey that you've been on the, over the last uh, over the last ten years, or whether it be in training for an ultra marathon, an Ironman, or any crazy event? Well, I think it's it's important that you keep the the long uh, focus in mind and 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 don't be discouraged by short term setbacks. Uh, I think I think the number one uh, most important thing for me in terms of preparing for these events is consistency. So consistency in training, consistency in preparation, and uh, I am still struggling with that as well, especially after having finished a, a big year which I had last year, and then having taken a few weeks off, and now getting back again into consistency and and training six days a week week after week uh to me that's the most important thing having consistency it doesn't really matter much if you do two or three 50k long runs a week it's much better to go six times a week uh, at much shorter distances so that's that's critical and uh, yeah i just hope people enjoy it and i look forward to uh closely following you and your upcoming challenge in in two weeks at the hong kong fortress ultra challenge and i uh, i hope you get a lot of support from your followers and, and i i'm very grateful that you do it for a uh, a charitable purpose as well and uh, i hope that you achieve all your your goals that you have for that yeah thank you and, and thank you so much for coming up with the challenge and and allowing so many people to really stretch what they think they can achieve so yeah it's a, it's a really really great challenge and we we all appreciate it thanks andre thanks for your time great cheers the endurance asia podcast and always tell a truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining because things ain't that bad Whoa! What a uh, what a story there from uh, from Andre Bloomberg. Um, hey, Rick, how's it going, sir? Yeah, good. What an uh, what an interesting guy, and what a what a track record in uh, ultra running. Oh, it's phenomenal, isn't it? I I mean, the, he's he's known as being the, uh, and I'm sure he doesn't he'd be quite modest around this, but known as the uh, the godfather of trail running in in Hong Kong, but. He's only been running for 10 years that, and just the, his CV, the races that he's done, I, I just, I'm mind boggled how he's managed to fit it in. It, it makes me think, what have I done this year? I actually haven't done any races this year. And it's, uh, the, the amount that he manages to cram into his calendar is phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, and he's, he's clearly gone all in on it from, from pretty, pretty early on when he got into it. Um, and we, we were talking about this before the podcast, but the that kind of obsessive nature, or you know, the kind of collector's mentality of going after these, you know, the the, the grand slams and um, all of the North Face runs and things. I think that kind of that obviously appeals to him, and um, there's a bit of drive there that that helps you start picking up all those races and planning. And the, the planning ahead, I thought, was interesting, not just thinking to the next race and that year, but but multi-year planning to make sure you get into the races that you really want to do yeah i think that he, he talks about that from you know from coming from you know that the high pressured business world working in technology as a project manager and he sees everything in the in his endurance races as a project as well and the way he talks about okay if he wants to do this race 
whether it be Western States or what does he need to do to get there? And so, okay, he goes and does the Northburn 100 mile in New Zealand as a sort of, to be able to get um, entry into, so everything is sort of like a stepping stone towards the, the next thing to accumulate all of these sort of crazy, uh, crazy races. There's just, um, it's just the collection of them all as well. Like the way that he did all of the North Face um, hundred in his literally he just started trail running and go straight into a hundred hundred uh, k and does them all in one season yeah and then does the um, uh, all of the Grand Slam so um, in in the US in in one season and then the the seven week one in yeah. Germany which he just kind of drops in there which is like two twenty to three hundred thirty thousand thousand kilometers in seven weeks in seven weeks yeah. <laughs> just back to back to back. Oh God! It, it makes me, uh, yeah, it makes me feel pretty um, lazy. <laughs> well, and I think, but I think what's quite refreshing is he's he's quite he was quite open about um, some early mistakes that he made in in terms of how he approached some of the races and changing his mentality around around that, learning from his DNFs. Um, I thought it was interesting to hearing him talk about that that first race, the the TD hundred in uh, the Philippines, um, and just seeing the guy guy ahead of him and it just it just kind of sapped the life from him and you and you you talk about that podcast with similar experience at Rinjani and and I I mean I had that I did the Mesa only the half marathon but last year and I remember that I think I told you at the time was running in third the whole way and you just you get closer to the end and you just start taking it for granted and it's just a really big mistake to make took a wrong turn the guy overtakes you and it just it just crushes you in a in a in a really sort of unexpected but overwhelming way you just you just suddenly run out of steam um and pay the price for for taking it for granted it's a really interesting experience yeah and how that has completely changed his his uh, mentality around leaving a race uh yeah the the idea that it will he'll only drop if he's either missed a cutoff or if he's pulled from the course and Look, that's extreme. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, there's obviously, you know, some people that wouldn't want to sort of push it that far. But I mean, that is how he manages to get uh, get these races done. You need to have that kind of mentality that you will push forward no matter what, no matter yeah. if you're throwing up, no matter if you've got a niggle. And uh, uh, yeah, it's it's truly um truly impressive. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, moving on, I suppose to um, to I suppose what's been happening in um, endurance world this past weekend. There's just been uh, the the Western States in, in endurance race, endurance run, of which uh, Andre has uh, knocked off in the past. But there were a uh, there were a few Asian runners out there. Yeah, good uh, good showing from Hong Kong with uh, Henry, Tom, and uh, Marie. And uh, we were just talking about that, I mean, how whether whether the training you can do in Hong Kong helps you or not for for those kind of conditions. But clearly, Henry coming in, what was he twenty fifth? I think. Yeah, and he he was sub twenty, so nineteen. I think it's nineteen forty or something. Um, but yeah, phenomenal, um, phenomenal run from him. Just uh, yeah, very um, very impressive. Uh, and obviously, I think Marie came in like twenty three fifteen, so in yeah. the, under the twenty four hours, and and Tom around around uh, twenty two hours. Just, I mean, they're the kind of the elite from Hong Kong's uh, really great crew. And uh, but yeah, when you look at what 
Jim Walsley managed to achieve. Well, there's almost there's almost sort of two competitions going on now, isn't there? There's sort of the the really really strong runners from from places like Hong Kong coming in and doing that, and then there's just this like ultra elite group now, yeah. really kind of pushing the boundaries of what's achievable at these sorts of races. Yeah. Um, and and you know someone like Walmsley knocking knocking twenty minutes off his own course record, um, second place going coming in the second fastest time ever recorded in the race. Tom Evans in third in his debut hundred miler. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like a different sport. That uh, Tom Evans is just a, he only came on the scene in 2017 when he uh, he podiumed. He finished third in in Marathon de Sable, and now he's just uh, yeah, he's off and flying from a military background, and uh, yeah, very impressive. But uh, yeah, we were kind of like going through the, I suppose the top of the field, and one of the things that stands out is that they're all training at altitude so i mean jim and jared the first and second uh, jared hazen are you know both in uh, in arizona in flagstaff i think it's arizona and uh, and then you've got a lot of people that are based in boulder and you know this is around um mile high i mean denver's a mile high city so this is around five thousand feet um yeah 15 uh, 1600 uh, 100 meters above sea level and it makes a big difference and they talk about the big marathon runners i mean kipchoge and all these they train at, at altitude and that sort of increasing the oxygen levels in the blood is is really really important for for long-term sort of endurance ability well and andre talks about it as well that it's, it just is a bit more of a challenge coming in as an international runner because you know the local guys aren't dealing with jet lag and you know the effects of being cooped up on a flight for 17 hours to get there um so it's not to say you can't do well if you come in from overseas but um it's, it's certainly not it's not an advantage um and uh, and perhaps no surprise that so many of the top top finishers were were u.s based yeah it's going to be hard going straight in at that altitude from sea level to uh, you kind of need to acclimatize or at least train i think you mentioned that tom evans has been training in in Ethiopia for a while uh, prior to yeah I saw that and I mean and then I think he's he was in he was in uh, on the on the course at Western States for a couple of weeks in advance um, and that you know again this is the difference between between full time elite runners and again these just incredibly impressive amateur athletes coming in from places like Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, it, exactly. It makes a difference if you're able to sort of train uh, train 24-7. But no le- no less impressive. I mean, uh, exactly. yeah, uh, Marie is just a phenomenal runner. And uh, and we're, we're looking um, we're, uh, to get her on the podcast soon, uh, Marie McNaughton. And she's, uh, she's training for UTMB at the moment as well. So, I mean, this is a great outing prior to, uh, to UTMB. Um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, it's kind of like a bit of an off season in uh, in Asia at the moment for uh, for races. We we seem to um, yeah, it's uh, it's obviously very hot in sort of the North Asia region, Hong Kong, and um, but uh, yeah, you've been mate, you've been off sick for a while now, haven't you, Rick? You've been uh, yeah, you missed out on the like uh, the last podcast, but you're um, man down for a while. Yeah, no one no one likes to hear excuses, but yeah, just. Uh out with a bug for a couple of weeks so now uh we're what are we 10 10 11 weeks out from tmbt so time to step things up so i've signed up for uh training camp up in the philippines with uh jp Olipio, um the rd of uh, cordillera ultra so that's a few days towards the end of this month um so looking forward to that we'll get him on the podcast and uh yeah, time to get back out there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to to that story actually. So JP is the 
uh, yeah, as you say, the RD of um, the Cordillera Mountain Marathon. Cord- what, sorry, what's the name of that race? Cordillera Ultra. Ultra, and yeah. they also they also do... They do, do a mountain, mount- yeah. yeah. Mountain biking uh, race as well. But he's also just a you know, really committed environmentalist. He spent a lot of time living up in that region and uh, working to kind of develop and connect the communities up there. So I think there'll be some really interesting stories. He's also a recent finisher at uh, Dragon's Back, like Abby. Um, and just, you know, really impressive endurance athlete in his own right. Yeah, I would love to have um, made that out to the Philippines with you, but that that would be very cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm off up to Hong Kong this week, so I'll be getting out getting out for a run. Actually, my mate Matt Pocock, who's, uh, who's training for UTMB, he's going to drag me over the twins and back and uh, we're going to do a double twins on uh, next week which I, I'm going to I'll actually find out I used to train a bit on there I'll find out whether my fitness has improved since um since moving down to Singapore um but I'm also going to be um uh we're interviewing with um with Ryan Blair who's who eyes oh, and he's an impressive dude so he's the guy that's uh, pulled together the North Face adventure racing team uh which has just some of the best both ultra runners, adventure races in in the whole of Asia, an amazing collective of you know, people from Thailand, Hong Kong, um, and just Philippines and, and around around the region. So I'm excited to um, to have a chat with him this week, and we'll be uh, we'll be publishing his podcast uh, in the um, yeah over the summer. And Andre's opening up registration for four trails again soon. He is, yeah. So I mean, whilst this um, this was recorded, uh, uh, this interview was recorded earlier on in the year prior to the twenty nineteen edition of the Hong Kong Four Trails. Yeah, it's opening up um, entries this month for the uh, twenty twenty edition, which will be over Chinese year end of end of Jan. Uh, it's interesting that he's he's the people any any people that have done it in the last two consecutive years. Uh, he's asked the sort of those people to take a rest for the following year so that will include Abby. Abby yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I think when we spoke to him he was like umming and ahhing I think the decision's made for him now he can have a he can focus on a few other races this year um but uh and Meredith as well who who um came up from Australia uh, she can have a uh, have a rest year um but yeah there's I, I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of interest once again and Hopefully, after people hearing this podcast as well, it'll inspire them or, or maybe scare them <laughs> from uh, from from putting their their name down. But it'll be interesting to see who's uh, who's going on the list for next year. Yeah, there's that. So yeah, always good to catch up, Rick. Um, look forward to um, yeah uh, a, f- a few more podcasts coming over the summer. And, yeah, we've uh, got some really exciting guests coming on. Yeah, and um, good luck with uh, with training. I'm actually. Um, getting out with a hopefully getting out with there's a uh, guy guy called uh uh, remains a a friend here who's um he's training for one of the utm races one of the um ones out in um in the alps this summer but he's a he's going to do a there's a concept called everesting which is I've, i've done it on a bike on faber before and um talking about doing it as a as a charity run on Bukatima uh, later in the year so that's doing a, a total elevation of Everest at 8,848 meters um, 
and um, yeah, he's going to be doing a uh, Denali, so six thousand one hundred meters on Bukatima on uh, um, this weekend. So I'm looking to get out and join him, show him some support. But uh, yeah, that will be um, that will be an interesting one to see. You're welcome to join if you're around. I think he's starting like ten p.m. Friday night, so you better do it now after talking about <laughs> this. But uh, no, he's uh, uh, yeah, it will be a be an interesting uh, little training session going up and down Bukatima. Um, good stuff nice one alright thanks Rick speak to you soon talk to you soon mate the Endurance Asia podcast and always tell a truthful story if they ever ask stop the complaining cause things ain't that bad things ain't that bad things ain't that bad things ain't that bad